Good afternoon. This is Dr. Eric Morrow for Cogley and Morrow on Politics. I'm glad you are joining us uh, this week uh, for another segment. It is me in the chair this week, and uh, Dr. Cogley uh, is away, and I will have an announcement. I have to wait until next week, but I will have an announcement about the direction of the show. I just want to let you know that uh, we will continue to be here. In fact, next week's show uh, we will be, we'll have several interviews. We'll be interviewing Jeff Stanford with the Stephenville Economic Development Association and Bill Leverton uh, with the Small Business Development Center uh, to talk about the economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis, the pandemic, uh, right here in Stephenville and Erath County uh, to look at uh, what what is happening. Of course, we see it day to day with businesses that are closed or operating uh, in, a, in a limited way. And so we all know that the economic impact is there and has been there for a few weeks and will continue. Uh, but it's important for us to look at that and understand uh, where we're going with this and what opportunities are going to come out of it. Uh, so our local economy is very critical. It's critical to providing the public services that, that we need. Uh, that have continued to function uh, during this crisis. And we want to thank our public servants uh, working for the city, the county, uh, for our school districts uh, in the work that they've been doing uh, to keep public services going. I mean, that's very critical. And people just don't understand sometimes. We Sometimes we just take for granted uh, that that those services are always going to be there. But the uh, the economic impact of this crisis does affect uh, the, the revenue, the resources that we have to provide public services, to pave our streets, to clean the water, uh, to provide police and fire protection, uh, to provide all the other services that, that are, are there from the city, the county, and even the state, and on a federal level. And so we will look at this more in depth and, and really talk about uh, some of the implications going forward, just as we did last week in looking at public schools with our interview with uh, Travis Stilwell from Toller ISD, the superintendent there. Uh, we want to look at where we may be going with policy decisions, uh, resources uh, focused on economic recovery uh, post-pandemic, or at least going forward. As we know with this pandemic, it is something that has been developing. Uh, we continue to see that in waves across the country as it uh, moves through uh, more populous areas, but now even rural uh, uh, rural part of the country is being uh, impacted as well. Uh, and we're seeing the, the changes that are happening and, and trying to understand the direction of where this is going. How, how long will this be with us? Is it, is it going to have multiple waves? Is it, uh, how is it going to, to uh, uh, kind of stress public health services or health services uh, in a region? That's been the primary concern here. Uh, with the restrictions that have been put in place. And for the most part, as we see in some parts of the country, as well as here in rural Texas, those seem to be working. It has very much slowed uh, the, the, the progress of, of the virus, or at least it being spread. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that we let up. Uh, I happened to see uh, Mayor Doug Savine the other day in passing, and uh, we've had him on this show before, and, and that's the concern. That's where our city leaders and, uh, and others are, and, uh, and uh, doctors here are monitoring uh, to look at how, the, how this is developing, but also to ensure that some of the restrictions that have been put in place are maintained because they seem to be having a positive impact on this and certainly slowing it down so that our public uh, services and our health services primarily are not impacted in a negative way where we have large numbers of people needing hospitalization uh, at any given one uh, given time. So the, what they're looking at are, are, are people keeping social distancing rules? Are they um, uh, are they not co congregating in groups uh, that would uh, cause the spread of this or businesses following uh, the orders that have been put out there? And so as long as people are doing that, as long as people are uh, trying to to put these measures in place and to prevent the spread of the virus, uh, then we we have a certain level of flexibility there. We have a certain uh, level at which we can yes get out and get essentials. We can can run errands. Essential employees can go to work, 
uh, and the impact of the uh, vi- virus is is not as significant. So this is something that we're watching week to week, and we have been looking at its impact on our uh, different areas of, of interest related to politics and government. Uh, and, of course, next week that we'll be looking at uh, the economic impact. We'll, we'll also next week, and just to, to give a little preview, I don't always do this, but uh, we're going to talk about how uh, and look at some polling data on how uh, the, the pandemic has impacted uh, how Americans view the news, how they engage uh, with news, and what is their favorability in terms of media, but how is that also impacting their uh, political engagement as well. Uh, there's some very interesting data out on that 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 uh, certainly shows that uh, people are more engaged in news. They're 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 watching more. They're getting information uh, from news. But where is the impact on this in terms of of the sources and in relation of those sources to where they might be politically in terms of ideology, party identification, and so forth. So some very interesting data that uh, I'll do a little more work with and consume over the course of the week uh, to be prepared to discuss uh, when we meet next week. One of the things that I do want to bring out, and we're talking about the pandemic and its impact, is when we look into the world of politics, uh, we have seen a great diversity here between Uh, the federal response and the response by states. And part of that is certainly related to the virus and the numbers uh, of of people infected, the the demands on health systems, uh, the number of hospitalizations needed. Uh, This is, as as you've seen, if people are watching the news, they've seen this kind of back and forth where at times it seems coordinated, at other times it doesn't. At times the federal government is saying, uh, states, you're kind of on your own, do this or take care of that. Uh, at other times, it's it's an act on the part of the president or others to speed up uh, resourcing for supplies that are needed. Uh, it, it, it's, been, it's been varied, but in all of this, it, it really affirms uh, one of the, the, the standard rules we see in politics in that uh, usually most people, when polled about politics in general, looking at their representative in Congress, looking at the White House, uh, that they're going to favor their person in Congress, uh, but the problem is everyone else. And so usually uh, uh, an individual's own member of Congress will get a a higher favorability rating, much higher than the rest of Congress as a whole. Now, if you've seen some of these polls in the past, uh, Congress uh, doesn't always rank very high in terms of favorability. But then you turn that around and you look at each individual member of Congress and their favorability ratings are usually very high within their own constituents. That's not always the case, but it's more of a norm. What we've seen in polling in the pandemic is that governors uh, are getting high favorability ratings. Uh, The fact that most uh, Americans, and we're talking about anywhere from 69 to uh, well, 69% is the average, but 61 to 75% of people approve of the job that their governor is doing compared to a national average of 44% of uh, President Trump's approval rating. So when you look at that, you see, again, this is more local. The governors are very much out front in most every state. They're very visible. Uh, they're making regular statements, just as the president is doing Uh, on uh, responding to the pandemic, and that is having an impact. That favorability rating uh, is is quite significant uh, among governors, uh, especially as people, I think, are looking at this on a state-by-state basis. We see this, uh, the news kind of structures this when we're looking at it geographically and we're looking at how the virus is spreading and how it's being addressed and what are the challenges of certain geographic regions, and certainly that comes down to states. And thus, governors are out front talking about it, responding to it, uh, asking for federal assistance, trying to uh, move forward the resources in their own state. And so it's very, very interesting to see how this is playing into a crisis like this uh, and what the impact might be uh, on a on the presidential race, which we'll get to in the last part of the program today. We want to kind of do a check in and see 
certainly based on the fact that Sanders uh, has dropped out of the race. Uh, but what are some of the factors that are influencing the way people view the candidates uh, and the possible outcome of the presidential election? Well, here's a factor that, that may have some influence, and that is uh, the focus being shifted, it seems, much more away from the federal response and more to what is happening uh, within each individual state. Will that uh, help the president or not? Will it help uh, a challenger, Joe Biden, or not? Uh, well, that's yet to be seen. A lot of time between now and the general election. Uh, but we do want to track that and give it some attention and, and make you aware of it as well. So moving on in today's show, we've got a couple of segments here. Uh, the things that we want to focus on to uh, give some attention to, especially related to the unique crisis that we're in at this point in time. And one of the ones that we've seen that's very interesting, and here we are at a very uh, important time of the year for many uh, uh, people of religious faith, uh, looking at Easter, uh, looking at Passover coming this next week. Uh, of course, today's the Easter for uh, uh, many Western Christians. Uh, Eastern Orthodox churches are, follow the, the lunar calendar in setting their date for Easter, so it doesn't always fall uh, on the same date. So it will be next Sunday uh, following Passover this next week on the 16th. And so uh, there's a lot of people who are seeing a tremendous amount of disruption uh, in their their regular religious practices, and the 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 reason for that is the virus. It is the limitations that government has put on gatherings. Uh, it it is the the need to to keep people apart, social distancing, uh, especially in terms of religious practices where you do have very close proximity of people and even close proximity in contact. Uh, in churches that, you know, say offer a, a sacrament each week, uh, who, uh, who greet each other as a part of a service. Uh, so all of this is having a tremendous impact. And here you will have millions and millions of people uh, these next few Sundays and this next week who will be celebrating a major holy events in their religious faith uh, but they'll be doing it in, in, in very unique and different ways. They will be doing it uh, watching uh, these services streamed live. They'll be doing it from their homes. They'll be doing it uh, outside of uh, the, the kind of normal experience of the community of people uh, that gather together for these types of events. And this is, this is quite significant. I mean, it's, it's one of those issues that has brought politics, religion, and science uh, all to an intersection uh, more more than than any other uh, issue in recent times to have this broad of an impact that there are other issues certainly that are at that intersection but in this case here you have the religious practice of millions and millions of people if not billions if we wanted to add around the globe uh, that are being impacted because of this pandemic uh, and you've seen varied responses of it you've seen all the way from uh, uh, people expressing ideas about uh, religious beliefs that are almost uh, uh, rely on a sense of magic here to say, well, if I do this and do that, uh, you've seen direct, there have been directives from religious leaders to say, oh, take this, drink that, go do this, and, and you will not uh, uh, catch the virus. Uh, all the way to really what we see the majority of, of adherents and of certainly religious leaders that are following the guidelines that are being put forth by government uh, to uh, uh, abide by restrictions, to not congregate, to have uh, churches basically closed. If services are going to be performed, uh, that they be uh, uh, performed and, and streamed uh, through Internet, through the Internet, or in other ways in order for people to participate, but participation being uh, at home, uh, staying home, staying safe, and not contributing in some way to the spread of the virus. Uh, as, as you see with this, and I'll get into it in a moment uh, in a little bit about economic issues, but you see with this that these kinds of things, especially when it comes to, to religion, uh, can really hit a nerve in terms of our uh, society, uh, especially because freedom of religion is so much of a cornerstone of, of our democracy. I mean, here it is something that has been uh, there for, and advocated from the very beginning, even though uh, we did have many of the colonies that uh, had a, a, 
a strong religious presence, identity, and established church. Uh, that changed over time. And what we saw with the, uh, the beginnings of the, of the nation, uh, this strong emphasis on, on religious liberty that was factored into the discussions. And part of the influence was that, of that were, are the influences that we still see today, that there is a tremendous amount of religious diversity uh, in this country. In fact, this, our country, the United States of America, is one of the most religiously diverse places anywhere in the world. Uh, because of the the numbers of people that we have here from all parts of the world who have brought with them their religious identity and religious practices. Uh, so this, this is an issue I like to talk about just to kind of give you a little context. I teach a course, which I'll, I'll have this next fall, on religion and politics. And it's, an, it, it's something, though, that it becomes very, uh, very challenging at times like this and, and needs some analysis to really uh, help us understand that kind of intersection uh, and to, to recognize the challenges. Uh, why is this challenging for many religious communities? Uh, it is because here are very traditional practices, especially when we're talking about Easter and one of the years when, uh, one of the times of the year when many people are, are in church and, and are participating, attending. Uh, the, the significance of the, of the holiday, of the uh, holy day itself. Uh, but, but these are very entrenched, longstanding, uh, and we're talking about not just centuries, but millennia practices within religious communities uh, that uh, are not easily changed. I mean, they, they have so many uh, elements, traditional elements to them that people have grown up and experienced, and, and they want that experience, and that experience is, is essential to uh, celebrating uh, that particular day. And so this becomes very challenging when you're telling people that they're not able to participate in the way they have before. They're not able to go into a church and light a candle. They're not able to uh, receive uh, communion. They're not able to uh, uh, enjoy the fellowship of a, of a religious community during this time period. Uh, that, that becomes very, very uh, difficult for, for many people and, and certainly for religious leaders as well. Uh, especially at a time when you think about this, here we are in a crisis uh, that, uh, in terms of science, you know, we're trying to analyze it and find solutions and, and answers uh, to it. Where on the other hand, in, in terms of our humanity, when we look at it in terms of the challenges that it brings, there are many people that find answers to those questions in their religious faith and identity. And so that connection to that is, is very, very critical. And so going to a service, going to a place of prayer, listening to uh, their pastor or their priest uh, or their rabbi or their imam, I mean, listening to, to people offer religious guidance uh, becomes very, very critical and at times very helpful to them in, in, in trying to understand and, and get through uh, these types of crises. And so we, we have to recognize that. We have to see that, that, again, ultimately, the majority of religious communities and leaders are abiding by the, the restrictions that are being put in place, finding alternative ways to communicate with their adherents, uh, and, but also it, being motivated with this, one, finding a balance between what we know about this in terms of science and, and data and facts and how it does spread, and then the balance is with the, the emphasis on the value of life, knowing that, that if people congregate, if people are in proximity to each other, uh, this is going to spread. And that spread could lead to serious health issues and possibly even death for some people. And so religious communities in and of themselves, their focus is very much on a value of life and then how this is put into action. And so by not going to church or to the synagogue or to the mosque, not participating in services and sacraments and ceremonies, uh, we know that, that that is actually saving lives. And I think that's where uh, you see the emphasis being placed uh, by many, not just in this country, but around the world in trying to address this and trying to say this is not can't be discussed as an infringement upon religious freedom as much as it is an actions we are taking uh, to preserve life. And so that, that I think, is where, where you see the debate, the discussion, uh, when this becomes uh, at that intersection of politics and religion. Now, on the other side of it, 
I think as a part of this, we have to look at how uh, the issues being addressed uh, by our political leaders, uh, because that can be very challenging as well. The, the language, because you have such a large number of people that have a strong religious identity, and that identity kind of influences and shapes their worldview and then helps them, guides them in engaging with a crisis like this, then it becomes can be very challenging for, for political leaders and how they uh, uh, speak about this. And this is where uh, we have seen a tremendous amount of, of, of work and analysis done on in, in this country with the unique arrangement that we have, with the high level of religious liberty, with the diversity that we have of how do you bring religion into the public square? How do you, how do you engage with that uh, in, a, in a country that is as diverse as we are? So we're not going to speak so much about coming from a religious perspective or identity, uh, but on the other hand, from those who are political leaders, how, how do they engage and in in address that? And I think this is one of the challenges that we've seen in communication. You've seen some governors, you've seen the president, you've seen people talk about uh, things that uh, are couched sometimes in either religious terms or this idea about, well, a, you know, a miraculous uh, change or, or, or something that will uh, impact this in a way. Uh, and then on the other side, that's con- often contrasted with uh, the, the scientific side of it, of, of explanation about what's actually happening on the micro level. Uh, what, what, how is this uh, a virus being spread? What, what are the health impacts of it? How do we combat it? What are the possibilities of a vaccine? And so on. And so one of the things that political leaders have to be very careful about in this uh, especially given our religious diversity, but our diversity of, of, of a country that have many people who are not religious, who have no religious identity or don't, don't practice a, 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 a religious beliefs uh, of how you communicate about that, that there is a reliance on the data, the facts, the analysis of what's happening and trying to make clear decisions uh, that in a way can certainly be communicated in a language that inspires hope and confidence and uh, the, the uh, community as well in terms of our response to this, uh, but doesn't go so far as to, um, uh, to feed kind of views about this virus that, uh, that are not based in reality. Okay? And, and, and let me explain, uh, probably need to explain that in a little more uh, in depth. And that is that you have political leaders. They're aware of the data, the facts, they're, they're relying on the information they're getting from the scientists and the doctors and the people who are engaged with this, that are studying it, that are trying to find solutions, that are trying to help us uh, through this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and relying on that and ensuring that good information is out there and that is what is being spread and discussed and uh, is available to people, is also in a message of, of, of that comes from genuine leaders that that they're inspiring people to say we need to serve we need to offer we need to give people hope we need to work through this we need to respond to the needs uh, uh, we need to as a country and as communities come together uh, to get through this those are all things that are strong values of our democratic society uh, that speak to anyone of any faith or not of faith uh, to help them in terms of their response uh, to this crisis. But again, focusing very much on the data and the information that is helping and guiding us, the, the, the scientific analysis of this, to guiding us to find uh, solutions. And this is where political leaders often get caught. They're, they're, not, they're not necessarily scientists. They're not uh, trained and, and um, uh engaged in that field to the degree that they have a level of expertise that they can speak from. Uh, But they are leaders, and so they need to be informed by that. They need to appreciate it and value it, uh, but they also need to to be able to communicate it in a way uh, that shows, that that instills confidence and uh, helps people to remain calm, as we've seen. I mean, I think one of the things that we've, we've seen in all of this is the high level of trust that we have as a country in the rule of law. Uh, that, that, is, that is what has helped, no matter what the messaging is uh, from our political leaders uh, and from, from others, is that you see that, that people, by and large, have at least a, a level of trust to say, 
okay, we're going to follow these guidelines. We're going to follow these uh, measures that are being put in place uh, because we know that that is critical to getting through this. And so what we've not seen is uh, a high level of, of uh, insecurity or what we would say would be destabilization, where, where we get to the point that the rule of law begins to break down because people no longer have trust in the system and the leaders who are trying to uh, uh, guide us through this and put the things in place that we need to address this. And so, uh, so that trust is there. I think that's something that's very commendable in what we're seeing across the country. I think it's something that tells us that the, the, the foundations and the underlying values of our, of our democracy are, are very much in place. Uh, that that there is a desire to get through this, uh, to work collectively to do so, to listen to those that are in positions of leadership who are trying to to guide and respond uh, to this because it is much bigger than any one city or state uh, or even this country. Uh, and so uh, that that can be reassuring in a time like this to say, hey, look, we, we do have this challenge. Uh, other than the runs on hand sanitizer and toilet paper and uh, a few other things uh, where that some of that's not, you know, how do you explain that? Uh, Again, the toilet paper thing just defies me completely. I just don't understand that. But, but, but those are minor things in comparison to uh, orderly breakdown of society that, that we could see happen and could result in some places uh, because of, uh, of a pandemic like this and its impact. Uh, again, we see people trying to abide by, the majority of people, abide by the, the restrictions that are in place in order to weather this, uh, to protect themselves, to protect their families, uh, to protect others in their community, uh, to give space to our uh, public officials and our, uh, those who provide uh, health care in our communities to be able to respond to those that are most in need. Uh, so, again, we'll come back and visit this more as we as we move forward uh, through this crisis. Uh, but it is something that, that I would encourage you to, to look at. I'll post some things on the Facebook page as well about uh, this intersection of religion, uh, uh, politics, and science in terms of this pandemic and some of the challenges uh, that it, it, it uh, has created. Uh, but it is a unique time. It is interesting in terms of the impact that uh, this has created things that we, you know, three or four months ago, uh, we would have, the most people would have never thought possible, that, that we wouldn't be able to be in our communities, our religious communities, uh, during this time of the year, that, that people would be restricted in the, in the ways uh, that they are. Uh, so it, it, it is something to show that our world is constantly changing. It can change in a very rapid and significant way where almost the entire world is impacted in some way. And that then has an impact on on politics and government uh, and how it affects our lives. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll have more Cogley and Morrow on politics. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but Cogley Amaro have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogley Amaro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogley Amaro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We're glad you're joining us today, and uh, we want to continue on with the show with a couple of segments here. The, the first one builds a little bit on what we discussed in the first half of the show, talking uh, about values when we look at the intersection of religion, politics, and science. Uh, but part of this, too, is also looking at another challenge that we've seen in the midst of this crisis, and that is the economic challenge. Now, I know I said at the beginning of the show that we will give that some very local attention next week with our special guests talking about uh, the economic impact and, and 
policy and decisions and resources that may come out of this current pandemic. But I also wanted to to focus this week, and we're talking about this kind of general area of values and how those are applied in a crisis like this, uh, to a, uh, an area that uh, in economics that is very much affected, and that is our economic freedom. It's our ability to go buy, consume uh, what we want. And while uh, that freedom is still there for the most part, uh, it has been infringed upon to a certain degree by the restrictions that have been put in place by local governments. And this especially applies uh, to businesses and their ability to operate fully uh, in the way that they do uh, retail, uh, any place where uh, you would have people congregate, where the social distancing measures have been put in place. That especially affects uh, uh, restaurants, food establishments. And so there have been calls. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, th- this, this isn't as widespread. I mean, I, I think that, that as we said in the first part of the show, the majority of people are abiding by these restrictions out of concern to get through this, uh, to get it past us and to uh, protect lives and to not overstress our healthcare systems. But then you also have those at the state, national, and even in our region who have called for uh, uh, just opening this up, uh, not putting these restrictions. In fact, in the play, in at one point, you've heard some say these are unconstitutional. That what government is doing to put these kinds of restrictions on businesses, uh, and and even some going as so far to uh, devalue human life in a way uh, by saying, well, just let this thing spread. I mean. I know some of this is based on on a scientific look at it in terms of how immunity is built up and how you deal with this on the long term. Uh, that that's one challenge. Uh, that or that's one uh, kind of foundation from which someone could look at. Another might be ideological, in that in saying, well, this is unconstitutional. What government is doing uh, to restrict us and restrict businesses? Uh, that that is um, uh, the the ideological perspective that says, well, we've got to hold to uh, this certain level and, and, and expression and, and way of freedom that we have ingrained within our society, uh, because if we don't, that becomes very, very dangerous. Um, yes, we've seen evidence of that in other countries and other places around the world. We've seen the challenges uh, of developing the level of economic freedom that we have uh, today within our own country. Uh, but but the the really the significant challenge here is where and understanding where we land on this it's one thing to uphold a certain value of economic freedom and know how critical that is to a democratic society that has a capitalist economic system uh, that uh, in integrating those and how much freedom of movement of freedom of of being able to use as much of our own resources as we can to purchase what we want, to go where we want, to to do what we want on businesses, to uh, offer services and offer goods and, and, and have a certain level of, of freedom in doing that without restrictions that can be, can be very uh, debilitating, and certainly in this sense where you've got a lot of businesses that are losing a significant amount of revenue during this time period and, and, and many that will be struggling uh, after this. And so one of the things I wanted to do is go back to a conversation that uh, we had on the show uh, several months ago in talking about what are those values that really come to the forefront during a time of crisis like this. So when we look back on the history of our country, we look back post 9-11, we look back to economic challenges uh, during the, the Great Recession to the Great Depression, we look back at major world conflict in World War One and Two. Uh, we look back at these these periods like this in times of tremendous crisis, and, and and then also we look at really the ebb and flow of how we conduct ourselves and we govern ourselves, and, and it's certain values that come to the forefront that really should have a, a first place, the first position uh, above just kind of this ideological view of, of uh, open economic freedom at all costs. Knowing that, okay, yes, it, if we do this and no restrictions, uh, there are going to be more people who, who have this virus. There are going to be more people who need hospitalization. 
uh, that we won't be able to provide the resources for. There will be medical professionals that will have to make those decisions between who gets treated and who doesn't, who lives and who may die. Um, that, if you think about it, if you and, and we'll talk about some of these values, uh, that that's really not who we are as a people and as a country and as a society. And so I just wanted to go back through these uh, just very quickly here in this segment uh, just to put these in front of you, and then I'll, I'll, I'll post them on Facebook as well, because these are the areas, I think, that when we go through a crisis like this, and, and this is we're challenging our students here to do this, to think about uh, their place in all of this, to think about how does this relate to their college education and the careers of vocations that they're preparing for? How do they, are, are they engaged in their communities and with their families? And, and, and how will they contribute to the decisions that have to be made after this? Where we go with, with government poli- with policy, where we go with uh, public services, uh, where we go in preparing for the next uh, pandemic or the next crisis like this that may come our way. These are the things that we really need to be reflecting about, uh, reflecting on, not not do I have the greatest level of economic freedom and is that maintained at all cost? It is what how do we uh, strengthen and maintain our uh, a thriving democracy by which the, those values that are first and foremost are upheld. And yes, again, protect uh, our freedom from uh, the power of government when and where necessary, uh, but really reflect who we are and who we should be uh, in a society that is working for the go- common good of as many people as possible. And, and as I read through this list, you're, you're going to see that that the that many of these values are d- in direct conflict with the promotion of any kind of value that would diminish human life, uh, that would... Um, uh, that would focus on economic either gain or even freedom itself over against the cost that it would be to a community, to families, and to our nation uh, to not use government in this way, to, to not uh, uh, have the kinds of restrictions that we have in place right now at the advice of those in the medical and scientific communities who are trying to help navigate uh, through such a crisis. So. Really, the, the first three on the list here, and this is coming out of the uh, a document that I've used here on the show before about in, enacting a thriving democracy and how that applies to what we do here in higher education at Tarleton State and at other institutions. Uh, but when you look at this, um, uh, these values, the first three on the list are dignity, humanity, and decency. I mean, I think when you look at that foundationally, that that is critical because it's critical really to understanding freedom. Uh, because freedom is not really is not on this list. It, it's assumed when you have dignity, humanity at the top of the list that that you're going to ascribe those values to every other single person. And so by doing that, you're affirming their freedom and their liberty. In fact, the limits on our freedom in this country uh, are put there to protect the infringement upon the freedom of others. And so uh, if we have respect for that other person, if, if we see the dignity uh, and, and the equality of all of us as human beings, if we understand our humanity, our shared humanity, then we're going to want the same things for the other person that we want for ourselves. And so that, that's very critical and foundational, not, not economic freedom. It is, it's, it's, it's that freedom comes out of um, uh, this... Uh, innate identity that we have as human beings and and the benefit of of recognizing the equality of that in each and every other person uh decency as i said uh, follows uh the the next three honesty curiosity and imagination uh those are critical especially when we're looking at ways in which to deal with this crisis uh, to use the, the technology that we have, the, the advancements that we have, our human intellect, uh, to be able to address this, get through it, find solutions, know that there are going to be economic, political, social challenges in the, uh, in the, the days, weeks, and months ahead of us, but being able to use our, our ingenuity and our creativeness uh, to be able to address those. Uh, wisdom, courage, okay, again, wisdom, uh, being able to to discern 
to, to work through a very uh, complex and challenging situation in a very complex world uh, and, and to, to see clearly a direction uh, and solutions, uh, not being uh, manipulated for just for political or economic or even uh, uh, gain of, of power and control. Uh, courage, uh, be able to act with integrity, uh, the capacity to thrive in the midst of ambiguity, uncertainty, and change. Uh, courage, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the inspiring people uh, to, to, to be bold and to, to kind of stand up and move forward, knowing that we need that kind of leadership, and we all need to be engaged in that way to find solutions in our own communities, our states, and our country as a whole. Uh, the emphasis on community as another value. Okay, this is another area that's very, very critical uh, when we're talking about the partnerships, the networks, how we collaborate and work together collectively uh, to make a contribution, to make a difference. Participation, that we are engaged, that we're not isolating ourselves uh, other than social distancing at this point and staying home and staying safe, but that we're participating in the larger dialogue, discussion, and efforts uh, to... Uh, uh, move closer to the common good. Stewardship, using our resources uh, in a responsible way. Resourcefulness, okay, we've seen a lot of that in this crisis with people uh, printing uh, masks and um, uh, other equipment, developing other, uh, the equipment that's needed for medical professionals to respond. That, that's always been a quality of our American identity. And, and lastly, uh, hope, a belief in the power of people to bring about desired uh, transformations, tenacity, uh, not giving up, knowing that even though there may be struggle and failure at times, uh, that we're going to continue to work for a good outcome. So the, these are the foundational values. Okay, sometimes we get these confused in that uh, we we think about the, our, our just our values in terms of freedoms, things we can do, can have, can want. Can, uh, um, we th- we think about it in those ways, uh, and not necessarily the 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 values uh, that we that we really share as human beings that are essential to to who we are uh, and should be a part of our. Uh, of our makeup and our character and our engagement with the world around us, especially our own society, and how we can work to, to make it better. And, and really these values, again, like I'm saying, my, my, my advocacy here is that these have to come to the forefront in terms of our discussions and our understanding of this crisis in order for us to, to get through it in a, in a productive way uh, to, yes, the economic freedom, uh, other other areas of, of freedom that we uh, are uh, uh, used to, that we want, that are important to the, the the functioning of our society as a whole. Yes, those are things that that we that we we want and we need. Uh, but at times like this, sometimes those freedoms have to be limited in some way uh, in order to protect life, but also to sustain the the values that are that are even more important. Uh, and that are at our foundation and help us to not just address this crisis, but uh, other crises to come. So in the turning now to, to the last segment of the show, I wanted to get back to uh, regular politics. I know this has been a little bit more of a um, uh, my, my thoughts on, on certain elements of this and, and trying to kind of encourage and uh, thinking, uh, deeper thinking and reflection about all of this. Uh, uh, this is a time to do it. I, I'm speaking as someone who worked in New York City during 9-11 and having been a part of the aftermath, seeing the destruction, seeing the loss of life, but also seeing uh, these values that I just discussed very much at work in rebuilding and keeping and sustaining people uh, through a tremendous crisis, but also seeing the change that happened after that, the tremendous change. Our, our, our society changed, our world changed, and, 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 and we still are wrestling with some of the elements of that. I mean, we're still, here we are almost 20 years later. Uh, this, this September will be 19 years uh, since 9-11, and there are still issues uh, that we are wrestling with and, and addressing that are related to the events of that day. And so this crisis that we're in now is going to be very similar. There are going to be issues uh, going forward for years, if not decades, that, that will change our lives, that will change our world, 
as that as some of that's already happening uh, that we'll we'll continue to address. And so that's why it's so critical uh, to, to think and reflect on these things. But in this last segment, I wanted to, to get back to the presidential race because we have had some developments uh, in the past week. While this is at a sub-level uh, in the news cycle to some degree because of all the focus on uh, the pandemic and its challenges, uh, we still do have a presidential election uh, coming up in November. And we've, we had a change this past week that seals the nomination for the most part. There are uh, always what-ifs uh, out there, but it seems now that Joe Biden is the lone candidate with the dropout of Bernie Sanders. And there's a couple of things that the interesting questions around this, uh, not so much about dis- discussing whether he'll win or not. We've still got a lot of time uh, before that. Uh, but discussing uh, some of the auxiliary issues that will now impact uh, the primaries that have been suspended or postponed uh, and the convention and really the eventual nominee of a candidate. We talked about the vice presidential uh, options uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, as all the speculation as Joe Biden announced that he would be choosing a woman to run as uh, his uh, vice presidential nominee. Uh, so that that continues. Uh, but the other would be to look at where uh, all of this is now with Sanders dropping out. And, and what we've seen in the last uh, week since that was announced is that Biden does have a, a, a jump um, in the polls, not very significant. Uh, Sanders has dropped a, a little bit as well. Uh, but this is an area that we'll be watching to see uh, how the party brings people together leading up to the convention. Really, the forecasted outcome now is that Biden will have over uh, 2,000, approximately 2,300, 20, almost 2,400 delegates going into the convention, uh, which is more than enough uh, to win the nomination uh, to uh, 1,400 uh, for Sanders. Uh, so it, it seems like in all possibility here, but there are some rules in place, and this is what's very interesting in this primary process, especially in this unique period where we're experiencing things that we've not seen for many decades or, or never at all. Uh, of the 3,979 total uh, delegates um, that are out there for the Democratic nomination, uh, those all those delegates are not set at this point. So we've had a number of primaries uh, that have been postponed or rescheduled. And so there are some rules that relate to that. Uh, so the delegate total could change uh, between now and the convention. Um, it's not significant enough in a way the way it, it looks now. So this may just be an intellectual exercise at this point. But it's interesting to see some of these rules. Uh, so uh, the, the, the first way that the delegate total could change is that there are bonus delegates uh, that the Democratic National Convention apportions to states. So bonus delegates can be awarded for two reasons. One would be for holding a primary or caucus later in the election cycle. Uh, because uh, oftentimes after Super Tuesday and some of the bigger states go, uh, that can determine who the finalists may be. Uh, but it, it does encourage to spread this process out a little bit. Uh, or concurrent with neighboring states. That means if a primary is held uh, at the same time as other states, uh, they can receive a up to 10% delegate uh, bonus. And states with contest in May or later receive a 20% bonus. So when you put all these bonuses together for states uh, like um, Georgia, Ohio, and, and Puerto Rico as a territory, uh, yes, they could gain some delegates. But when we're looking at that, uh, the, the total impact of that may only be about 55 delegates. So when you're talking about almost 4,000 delegates, uh, that's not a significant number in order to swing the vote. The second way is that uh, states uh receive bonus delegates if they're holding the primary on the same day as other states. Uh, And so we'll see this like Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New York. Uh, States adjoining them are holding primaries, and so uh, their bonuses could increase 10 to 20 percent. There are also penalties. So penalties take away delegates 
Uh, and that is uh, when they need to reschedule their primary and they haven't done it by a certain deadline, which is Louisiana, uh, Kentucky, uh, and New York. They've gone past the deadline for announcing the rescheduling, and so that could lead to a 50% delegation reduction. Again, all of this in the, in the scheme of things will not significantly change the outcome uh, at this point, uh, but it's interesting to kind of look at the math here and to see this kind of impact. In fact, if all of this were to happen, uh, the total number of pledged delegates at stake in the nomination process would fall only by about 103 delegates. And so, again, when you think about 4,000, almost 4,000 delegates, uh, that is not that significant. Interesting, though, interesting times, and it's something that uh, is, is, is something to follow as we move into the convention. The news reports out of the convention say that um, the Democratic Party is not, the National Convention is not really looking at this as much of an issue given the nature of the crisis that we have. And so we're more likely to see no penalties. Uh, maybe no bonuses, only if it would affect the outcome. I think might this be applied, but uh, it's not likely uh, that we're going to see it. The, in closing, I wanted to point out one other thing, and I pull an article from a Yahoo News site just because these are popular articles that often get out there, and just wanted to point out a couple of things in that uh, there was an article that talked about three warning signs for Trump in November. Uh, there's three things here that to, just to watch, and we've pointed out some of these on earlier shows. Uh, Biden is strong in swing states. That is true. He has about a four to five point lead in some of the swing states that Trump won barely from Clinton in 2016. And we've already talked about swing counties. The other is that the Republican Party is shrinking in terms of the uh, membership in the party. Is that going to have an effect or not? And then the final one is that voters judge a president on the last six months. Well, we're in that period, or we're moving, we're moving into it. And, of course, this crisis has a tremendous impact, which we'll talk more about uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, but that could uh, certainly will influence uh, how people see the candidates and the president-elect going into the election process. We want to thank you for joining us today on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Join us each week at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.